There is a black hardback underneath the chair around you that you're more than welcome to grab and to turn there with us. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We are hitting chapter 6, which is a new chapter, which means progress. It's only been 10 or 12 weeks, and so uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7, and we begin chapter 6 this morning, um, and we will read together Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. This is what we'll be studying this morning. Jesus is preaching, and he says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now there's lots of things that your money goes towards when you donate here to the church. Um, One of them is giving to the needy. Um, We have procedures and and policies in place where when people come to the church in a crisis of sorts, in an emergency financial situation, I have the authority to give them a a small amount of financial help in the situation using um, the wisdom um, that, that I have, usually in conversations with Elizabeth, with the board member, if I get in touch with them or not. Because of the time sensitivity, uh, sensitivity of most of these situations, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go to a vote for it or to get in touch with everybody. And so I have some discretion to use these funds. And um, so, you know, if ever one day there's a big amount missing, the next week I have like bicep implants, um, <laughs> there'll be some questions asked because the math doesn't add up there. But um, more than you might think, we have people who come to the church who are truly in need, and it's often the money that you have given us that allows us as a community to bless those in need, like Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Just about a week ago, a woman called and spoke to her on the phone for a couple of hours as she told her story. She was a breast cancer survivor, um, had been battling uh, and going through chemotherapy for years and years and years and was in a spot now where after, after receiving assistance from all kinds of different organizations set up to assist people with these kind of needs, um, she had some valuables in storage. Um, she had to move out of her house and she was downsizing and paying for medical bills and things of that nature. Um, and none of the organizations would help pay this one final bill that the storage company wanted since she hadn't paid the bills in a while before they'd give her stuff back to her. And they were all saying, we need an eviction notice from your apartment complex to meet our levels of need there. And she was like, to me, that doesn't make sense. I don't want an eviction notice. They were like, you don't actually have to be evicted. We just need you to get a letter saying we might evict you. She was like, so I'm trying to avoid that if possible. And we're like, we understand. Um, and we're able to, to help her out. You were able to help her out. Um, a couple weeks before that, there was a woman who came in, and she was here uh, when I showed up at the office talking to our office manager, Elizabeth, um, she was crying. Elizabeth was praying with her. We started talking, the three of us. Um, she had been through a multitude of difficulties, and her grandmother had recently passed, who had, from my understanding, practically raised her, um, and she couldn't afford a bus ticket to go to the funeral. 
um, and still pay food, uh, pay for food for, for her children. Um, and so we, we prayed over her, we ministered to her, and, and we bought a bus ticket so she could go and, and mourn over her, her grandmother. And there are stories like that that happen so often, and it is difficult to remember and to recall for many reasons. One, you'd be surprised at how many times things like these happen. Two, these are difficult stories, and they're difficult details to, to think about. Um, but from the very beginning of God forming a group of people and saying, I want you to be my people. I want you to, to reflect my will and creation. I want you to kind of be my representatives into the world. One of the largest commandments they've always been given has been this. Take care of the poor people. Take care of the people around you who are needy. You go back to the Old Testament, even from the very, very beginning. The scholars, when they read the Bible, they, they, they see these narratives and they see God's desires coming through and his commandments and the way he reacts to certain situations. And this phrase has come up. And the phrase is this, that God seemingly has a preferential bias towards the poor, which, which translates like this. It would appear based on the narratives we get in Scripture, that if all, all factors were equal, if there's a poor person in need and a person with wealth in need, God would lean towards helping the poor person. Not because he loves them more, not because the rich person maybe did something wrong, just because, again, from the Scriptures, it seems like God has a knee-jerk reaction to helping those who are really really down and out. And he's always commanded his people to do this as well. Jesus here in this passage talks about giving a need, giving to those in need. Um, There is a lot of need in our world. There's always been a lot of need in our world. Um, And and, and in the first century, when Jesus is speaking, um, almsgiving, or the practice of giving to those in need, um, is a different actual um, practice in giving to the temple or to the synagogue. So it would be different than what we consider a tithe. Um, and it's a, kind of a complex subject we don't have a lot of time for this morning. Um, but that was seen, the tithe, you know, what we might think of like giving to the church, was seen as almost like more of a responsibility. Like, a, of course you do that. You, it's a family thing. You take care of one another. You take care of, you know, the organizations, the overhaul, whatever it takes to, to keep these things organized. The, the, the almsgiving, the giving to the need, was what you did with the abundance you had left over after you fulfilled your responsibilities, one of which would have been um, giving to the, the synagogue, giving to the temple, doing your offerings. And in the first century, Jewish people, if you would have asked them to list off certain things God had commanded them and then to prioritize them, many of them would have said almsgiving or giving to the needy was what God desired us to do the most. Say, if we had to pick between giving to the needy and fasting, he would want us to give to the needy. It's this kind of implicit throughout the entire scriptures, throughout all of God's communication with his children. And so Jesus now in the sermon transitions into a new um, point of teaching. In in verse 1 of chapter 6, we get kind of the thesis for about the first half of chapter 6. He says, beware of or be careful, take notice. Anytime Jesus says be careful or beware, our ears should perk up. Because this means we're, we're getting into the land of temptation. We're getting into a land where we are easily self-deceived. 
where we get trapped in our own kind of rationalizations and qualifications. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He'll then talk about three different acts of righteousness. Giving to those in need, which we'll talk about this morning. Praying and fasting. And this one thesis statement will apply to all of them. They'll say, when you practice, don't do it in order to be seen, so that you'll get a reward from your Father who is in heaven. A few things to notice. One is that Jesus does not say, don't practice being a righteous person. He says, when you're being righteous. And he's he's not even technically saying, don't do it in front of other people, right? He says, when you do it in front of other people, don't do it in front of other people to be seen by them. Some have looked at this and seen, is there a contradiction here? Jesus earlier told us that we should act in public so we would be like a city on a hill. So people would see how we behaved and see what God's heart is like, see what God's love and will and desire is like. So Jesus is not implicitly saying you can't ever do anything good in public. You should all go MI6 undercover, get new names and identities. He's saying if you happen to be in public when these things occur, you need to beware of your motive. Beware of your intention. Beware of why you're doing what you're doing. This righteousness ties back to um, verse 20 in chapter 5. If you remember in chapter 5, verse 20, you can just probably look at it on the other page there in your Bible. This is the end of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has, has already told this group of people listening to him, look, I've not come so that you don't have to obey God's commands. I've not come to abolish God's instructions for his people. I've come, if anything, to intensify them. And then he's gone through, right? He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, let's stop lusting after people. And you've heard it said, if you murdered someone, you'd be liable to hell. I say, let's stop being angry at people. Let's, let's reconcile relationships. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I say, let's stop retaliating against each other. Let's stop the cycle of, of violence and vengeance that just goes on and back and forth and on and back and forth. Jesus now keeps talking about righteousness, practicing righteousness. He doesn't say, don't practice righteousness. He says, beware when you practice this righteousness, when you give in need. Beware because of your motives. Beware because of the rewards that you will get and can get. Now let's talk about giving to the needy. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. We don't know if Jesus is being hyperbolic here, or if there were actual people in the first century who actually hired trumpeteers to blow when they gave to the needy, which, by the way, the world is a weird place. Right? I'm sure you've seen things within the last year that you're like, I've never thought I'd see an adult do that or say that out loud. That was true of the first century, too. So who knows? This would be, I think, like the Tony Stark equivalent of a first century Jewish person here. That's not a joke for everybody, but for some of you, you're appreciating that. He says, don't, don't blow trumpets when you do it. Don't Clang the money in the offering plate as loud as you can so, so people know, wow, that's a guy who really cares 
about giving to the church, about giving to the needy. He says they'll be praised by others. And he says they've received their reward. Now, this is interesting reward language. Jesus uses languages of a speech of reward a lot, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. And we often, as Westerners, blush when we think about rewards. We have, um, perhaps you're not aware of this, culturally there has been a philosophical movement um, about what it means to do good things. And typically how we think is that if you get something for doing something good, it lessens how good that action was. It's all truism. So, for instance, if you were to give a million dollars to Sweetwater Christian Church, by the way, we accept checks up to that amount and larger, and then you got a tax break of more than a million dollars, most of us would second guess your intentions. And we'd still be like, especially me, well, we got that million dollars either way, right? (laughs) But there might be a little bit less righteousness in that act. Do you understand what I'm saying? For the first century Jews, this was not a a conversation they had. They didn't have these reservations about rewards and generosity. And when Jesus is teaching about righteousness, he's not teaching about doing it for no reward versus doing it for a reward. He's just comparing rewards. He's saying, you're settling for a really awful reward. So he says, when you do that, when you blow the trumpets, let's say, let's say you give to the needy all the time. There's all kinds of ways you can do that, right? You can give to the church and the church on your behalf. You should be making sure we're doing this. Helps give to the needy. You can do this on your own in a situation. Uh, perhaps you see a homeless person. Perhaps you know of someone in need and you can personally help them. Whatever the case is, if you go on Facebook and create a you know, promotional video for the um, offering you have given to that person in need, Jesus says, you'll get a reward. You'll get those 12, 15 likes. And some people are going to kind of think, wow, that's a, that's a really Christian person. And let me, let me tell you, as a pastor who stands on stages with bright lights, I've stood on stages with bright lights with other people who got that reward. That's what they wanted, and that's what they were getting. And it's not always a bad reward. That's the temptation of it. You can get a lot from people thinking you're a righteous person. And notice again, you're not faking being righteous. When you're actually doing good things. You're actually obeying God's commandments. But you're doing it for applause. You're doing it for influence. You're doing it for attention, ego. You're doing it for money. You might not be aware of this, but you can preach your way into millions and millions of dollars. This has been a a downfall since religion met TV. Jesus doesn't say you get no reward. He says, that's it. Enjoy the applause. I mean, you really better suck everything out of those likes. Enjoy whatever checks you get in the mail there. Because that's the end of the reward you get. For Jesus, the option is not no reward or reward. It's small reward versus a reward from your Father in heaven. Which to me as a little kid would sound like a bait and switch. 
Oh, I get a reward from God. I get to go sing in a choir in heaven for eternity in the most boring experience of my life. But for Jesus, the Father is the giver of all life. He is the holder of all pleasure and joy. He is the one who grants peace and truth. For Jesus, the Father is a generous God who can give you more pleasure, who can give you more peace, who can give you more joy, who can give you more life than you could ever start to imagine. And so when Jesus says, you'll get a reward from your Father in heaven, he's thinking big leagues. He's saying, whoa, 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 you want attention? If you want that, you can get it. Or you can aim way higher. And you can get this reward from your, your Father who's in heaven. He uses this phrase. He says, when you give to the needy. Notice that he says twice now, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. Jesus is following in this long tradition of uh, a very straightforward, if you are a child of God, part of the people of God, you must be intentionally giving to the needy. This is part of the DNA of what it means to be part of God's people. Again, there's lots of ways to do that. Not if you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Which is also a very interesting phrase. One um, scholar says this, this kind of indicates a self-forgetfulness that should be inherent in Christian righteousness. This sense that when we obey God, let's say in this case, giving to the needy, there's this inherent self-forgetfulness to the act where the act is so focused on God's glory and so focused on the person that you are blessing that you might forget to record a record of it in a journal, that you might not have time to make a, a, a large Facebook, Facebook ad, you know, promotional video for it, that you might not have a Word document 30 years later where you've listed off all the righteous things you've done. Because as soon as your right hand or left hand did it, your left hand or right hand was thinking about something else. It was never about you in the first place. When, not if, you give to the needy. And he says, and your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. John Chrysostom was an early Christian church father. He was called the golden-tongued preacher, which is a cool nickname. I've been called a lot of things that's not been one of them. If you've been on Facebook recently. <laughs> I would take golden tongue. John Chrysostom says this. It's hard to say it much better. Notice the distinctions he makes here. He'll say the word alms. He's talking about giving to the needy. He says, alms may be given in the presence of others, primarily to be seen by others. Or they may be given in the presence of others, but not in order to be seen. Or they may be openly given in order to be seen, but still not to be seen. Or they may be given quietly and still seen. He lists off four options, and he says, Jesus is getting at the first one here. You're giving in order to be seen. That's what Jesus is, is saying, don't do. You're going to max out your reward capacity at a very small level if you do that. There is no real command here to do everything in secret. 
Chrysostom gets it right. He says, sometimes you'll have to do something in the presence of others. You maybe can't avoid but to do it without other people watching, but you don't do it in order to be seen. And then he even makes it more complex, right? He says, sometimes you do it so that it's seen, but also to be unseen. This is maybe that sitting on the hill thing, right? Sometimes you're doing it, but not for your own attention, so that your actions can be transparent. Someone can see God's heart through your actions. You can see an example, a witness. Then sometimes you can try to do it in secret, and someone still might see you. God's not going to be like, I'm sorry, you did your best, but <laughs> it doesn't count. When you give to the needy, he says, don't do it for the reward of attention or praise. Let even your own self just forget about it and move on to the next one. Now, like I said, we live in a world of need. It's interesting that Jesus here is talking to mostly peasants in Galilee who their needs are much more existential in life and death than most of our needs. Most of us here today are doing okay. We're not worried right now, I'm, I'm thinking, about what we'll be able to eat for lunch. Unless it's like, are we going to Applebee's or like Texas Roadhouse? But I don't think a lot of us right now have our stomachs in a crunch like, will I eat today? But there are actually people in our community who might be worrying about that right now. Seems kind of surprising, a very affluent community we're in, but there are real people in real need. You go a little bit larger into the Houston area, and you have a large homeless, addicted, mental illness population. Then you compare that to the world. The average homeless person in America is doing okay compared to the truly needy in like a third world country. And in all of this, right, you've just got complexities, layers of complexities. It's not to say that the homeless person in Houston, Texas, is not truly in need. They are. It's not to say that the person in the third world country is somehow in more need or somehow more deserving of need or somehow has some different kind of need. No, they're in need as well. It's, it's just to say that we live in a world of need. And, and, and we have to distinguish, though, for our own sakes, between true needs and perceived needs because we are raised and fed a diet of paying attention to perceived needs and not true needs. That's what advertising does for us, right? You need this watch to be happy, to get that girl, to get that job. Well, you don't need the watch. You might want the watch. It might look cool. You might actually get the girl with the watch. It's a little-known fact. Girls love men with watches. <laughs> I've got some watches to sell after service in the back there. Um, it's a different need to say, you know, I, I don't think I can afford the next payment on the mortgage of the house. That's a pretty big house in Sugarland and also pay the cable bill, and also pay. Right? Those are different kind of needs. Not that they aren't needs, but different kind of needs than the person who says, I don't know how I'm going to feed my child. Or, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight without getting arrested by the police, because it's actually illegal to be homeless now in Houston. 
I don't know if, if we'll survive the bombings over the next couple of months as we live out on the streets in this country or that country. And in a world of this kind of need, Jesus' people are supposed to be on the look, saying, we've been giving a blessing from God, and how can we make a dent in these needs? And what it takes is it takes intentionality, and it takes accountability. We have to intentionally be trying to give to the needy. The statistics, um, I don't like giving percentages and statistics because they are always debunked, right? And most of them are proved to be made up. Um, if you, though, go do the research and look at it, the statistics for the average church-going American Christian, the percentage of income they give to charitable organizations, including but not limited to their church, is under 3%, which most people are surprised about. You do that study, take it a step further, though, and then go to the people who are surprised and say, can we see your budget? And then they look at the money that they're spending and go, oh, we were surprised about that, too. <laughs> it's really just a matter of financial illiteracy. We have Jason and Chris Watson here, and they teach Financial Peace University. Lindsay and I have been through it. They're teaching a, a course right now. Um, and, and what happens, we've all probably realized this, right, is we just always don't know where our money's going. If we're not super tight about that type of thing, I know maybe some of us are like type A and we know where every cent goes. But I know there have been times where we've been like, where's all of our money? Lindsay and I are sitting down and we actually go back through the bank records and we're like, we're funding Papacitos. We don't, <laughs> we don't even have a share in the company. This is not, <laughs> we're getting ripped off here. We're just eating out once a week. Or where AT&T signed us up to this sweet cable package deal. And now three years later, we're paying like $400 a month. And we just haven't realized, right, where the money's going. And what God's people are called to do is this is like a zero-based budgeting system where, where you get $100 and you say, where am I putting this $100? And on the top of that priority list is, I'm hoping a need that I can find and perceive and see. We contribute to. And this is where maybe accountability comes in. I say this a lot here. There's no one better at lying to you than you. No one can justify my sinful behaviors more than I can. The second best person at lying to you about your sinful behaviors is probably your spouse. Because they're probably just invested right, and the leisure activities and the pleasure that you're getting out of your spending. So here's where I would suggest being a part of a community that's open and honest and loving and graceful toward one each other could really change the game. Like, what if you could share your budget with a friend in the church or with a small group? And you could talk about generosity and talk about perceived needs and, and perceived improvements. And what's happening right now across this entire room is we're all clenching up. Some of us are getting more nauseous than others. And it's explainable. Because we, we have, since we were a kid, been bullied or shamed for something. Even if we were in the wrong, in a bad way, in a harmful, hurtful way. And there's actually even a lot of us in this room who have been bullied and shamed spiritually. We've gone to churches that have spiritually abused them. And it's really just like, it's like anything else. 
the greater the gift, the more hurtful it can be distorted. Food, gluttony, anorexia, bulimia, sex, right? I mean, all the, the better the, the gift, the more potential it has to hurt. That's the same way with honesty and transparency in relationships. To have a small group or to have a group of friends or to have another family that you can sit down with and really be honest and vulnerable with is such a powerful and freeing and transforming thing that used in the wrong way, it can also destroy your life. So here's the the beautiful truth we have, even if it's hard to live into and if we're not there yet. It's because Jesus has already died for your sins. Because he took your shame on the cross and took it into hell itself and rose in victory. And you are united with him in the heavenly places, sealed by the Holy Spirit for an eternity of glory, You have no shame over anything you have ever done or are doing right now. Let me use a fancy word. It ontologically does not exist. It is not a reality. Any shame you feel is something you are perceiving that is not truth. It has no anchor anywhere in the world. Why? Because a human being... God in the flesh, Jesus has already taken care of it. It's gone. He put it on himself and then he killed it. This is why as a preacher, I get up a lot and tell you about the mistakes I make. And tell you about the struggles that I have. It's not a marketing thing. I'm not positioning myself to be that preacher. It's because a few years ago, someone taught me that and I finally understood it. I can get up and I can say anything. And you might feel shame for me. And you might try to shame me, but guess what? I had none. The worst that will happen is I'll pretend that I have a little shame and feel bad about myself for a little bit. And then I'll remember, no, it's dealt with. That's why historically Christians have, have done this thing called public confession. Not just secretly in their minds told God what they've done wrong. They've told their brothers and sisters in Christ what they've done wrong. Here's why they can do that. They're forgiven. And in a proper Christian community, that's always communicated. So if Michelle and I, if Zach and Lindsay, our spouses, are sitting across the table and we're talking about finances, and I happen to know Zach and Michelle are very generous, and Lindsay and I can can probably learn some from them, we're able to say, look, this is, we've actually taken money from the poor last year, not given any. And we know Lindsay and Zach lovingly will push us towards Christ-likeness, but are never going to beat us up over it. It's not going to threaten the relationship. They're going to be loving and gentle and kind and, and you build us up and encourage us. And because we are able to open up, we're going to be able to improve and talk and grow. This is the beauty, I think, of the Financial Peace University class. Is that when you're in a silo by yourself, it just gets kind of overwhelming. You don't even really know where to go. But when you can like breathe and admit to some other people, like, okay, we're all here, so maybe we all have something we can improve financially. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what's going on. Then all of a sudden, things get easier, and you get more wisdom and advice being poured into your life. I think this is where we should, should be heading as a community, heading as small groups, heading as relationships. 
I, I get it. Since we've been children, we've been shamed and bullied. Churches across the world continue to shame and bully. Small groups continue to do this. Relationships inside of churches continue to do this. This happens to you at Sweetwater Christian Church. Come talk to me and we'll end it. But until then, let's move that way. I get it, right? I'm not going to open up my bank account tonight to somebody. Sift through. But, but maybe I'll think this week about having a conversation where I'm a little more open about that. Because it takes intentionality, right? You just don't know sometimes. That's why it's a blind spot. You don't know that you don't know. And it takes accountability, at least for me, to really get anything done right. I have to have somebody watching, somebody making sure that I'm following through on what I want to do. Because I'm so easy to forget or easy to be distracted. When you give to the needy, not if. It takes intention. I think it takes some accountability. And lastly, let's talk about this reward. Since you can get this reward or you can get the reward from the Father. And I've thought a lot this week about this reward language because it even makes me kind of uncomfortable to feel like I might be doing something in order to get something from God. I was kind of raised, right? That's the opposite of how we should be thinking. You just do it because you do it. And even if God decided to like, kick you in the throat because of it, you'd still do it because it's what God told you to do. Jesus has this like different set of expectations and understandings where he says, no, you're, you're in it. And, and there's, a, there's a big pot of gold at the end of this road. The, the closest I could get to helping me understand what this reward language might be getting at was from a guy named C.S. Lewis, a real famous Christian writer. I'm just going to quote him. I spent a lot of this week trying to come up with a better example than he gave, and I couldn't. Um, so some of this you might have heard, some of this you will have not heard. C.S. Lewis says this about this passage and similar ones. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels by Jesus, it would seem Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It would seem Jesus thinks the problem is not that we want pleasure, it's that we're willing to settle for people paying attention to us as the pleasure. It's that we're willing to settle for checks as the pleasure, whatever it might be. It's that we're willing to have our ego stroked as the treasure. Lewis says, we're, we're half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't even imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And then he says this, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when, we say, when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. This Think of our age, right? If you do something knowing there will be a reward because of it, it kind of lessens the impact of what you're doing. So don't be troubled by that because there are different kinds of rewards. There is a reward that has no natural connection to the thing you do to earn it. And it's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those actions. Money is not a natural reward for love. Hopefully this is not news. That's why we call men mercenaries if they marry women for the sake of their money. Right? It's not a proper reward. It's not a natural reward. It's arbitrary. 
you should maybe have a tainted feeling towards that if someone marries someone because they want their money. But marriage, he says, is a proper reward for real love. No one's a mercenary for desiring that. If you truly love someone, marriage is not a reward you should be shamed for. (laughs) It's a reward that's inherently connected to the desire itself, to the act itself. They, They go hand in hand. He says proper rewards like this, they're not simply tacked on to activities. They're inherent in them. And then he goes a little bit deeper. He says there's a third case like this where the reward is inherent with the action. But it's a little bit more complicated. This is where I try to come up with a better example. This example I get. I don't know if you'll get. Enjoying Greek poetry... (laughs) What happened to do? I'm sorry. Enjoying Greek poetry is certainly a proper reward for learning Greek. And he says, only those who have reached the stage of enjoying Greek poetry can tell from their experience that this is so. Enjoyment creeps in upon the mere drudgery, and nobody could point to a day or an hour when the one ceased and the other began. Let me tell you this about learning Greek. Um, it's not sexy. You don't go to seminary, sit in a Greek class, and every day like you come out like shining. You come out with a hop in your step, more holy, more happy, better job offers coming your way. It's a lot of memorization. It's a lot of like saying words you shouldn't say, not wrong Greek words, but like mean words because you're mad at stuff. It's a lot of bad grades. It's a lot of long nights. It's a lot of studying. It's a little bit of cheating for other people. I mean, it's not a, it's a, it's a long, drawn-out, hard process. We've all, at one point, been forced to learn at least one language or tried to at least learn one language. And you know this is to be the case, right? Very few people, until they've learned a few, find learning a language itself to be an enjoyment. But, and I've experienced this, after... Those years of drudgery, he calls it, which is a good, accurate description. You get to a point where all of a sudden I'm reading something in Greek. And I enjoy it so much that the thought of reading this as a translation in English would make me sad. Not to be snobby, right? You, we all have our versions of this. Mine just happens to be lame. But when I was in the class learning Greek, I had no idea that that was going to be a reward. And I couldn't, I couldn't point to the moment, right? The day all of a sudden it stopped being something I did or stopped being something I ex- didn't expect and then started being like, oh, aha, this is why I did it. This was the reward that was coming for me because of doing that. Lewis ends, he says, insofar as someone approaches the reward that he becomes able to desire it for its own sake, that the power of so desiring it is itself a preliminary reward. If we are made for heaven, the desire for our proper place is already inside of us. The only other example I can think of really is church. So when I became a pastor, I was 20 years old, and it was a job. And I was better at it than making sandwiches at Subway. 
and it got me a little paycheck and it stroked my ego a bit. You know, I had like upwards of 12 people listening to me a week. And now I think about life about nine years later and I can't imagine what it would be like to not be part of a church community. Not as the preacher or as part of the staff, but like to be actually like involved in the nitty-gritty and in and out and the mess and the good and the bad and the positive. And when I when I first started preaching, I didn't even think, I didn't even know that those were possible feelings. Those weren't on my radar. Someone could have tried to explain them to me at the time and I wouldn't have understood. It was just something I did. And I expected some rewards from it. But there were different rewards than what I now realize is the true reward. From what I now realize that if I could go back in time, I'd try to start doing it years earlier. From what if I realize right now, if I could go back in time, I would sacrifice so much more if I had to just to continue being able to be a part of a church community. You know, if I was 22 and y'all would have fired me, I'd probably said, okay, goodbye, and, and went off and done something else. Today, if you fire me, I'm probably going to be like, all right, who's preaching next week? I'm, I'm just going to sit right there. <laughs> the reward itself has become kind of inherent in the act in a way that I never really expected, but in a way that's far beyond anything I could have ever expected. And I, I imagine, I wonder if this is what Jesus is getting at here when he talks about the reward your Father will give you for righteousness. It's not the type of reward you could even imagine to expect. Because the Father is the Father of life and joy and peace in such ways that we have not experienced. And and to dig into the lifestyle that the, the Father has called us to live is to position ourselves in such a way that we are closer to him that we are more relationally bonded to him, that we feel his presence more and more often than we have in the past. Which naturally, as a proper reward, not as an arbitrary, arbitrary consequence, brings with it more life, more peace, more joy. And one day, we're going to be looking back at ourselves having the first conversation whenever that happened or happens saying, okay, we got to give to the needy. It's going to hurt. We're not going to be able to do this that we wanted to do. And, and we're going to look back and go, man, we were like playing with, with like slime in that back alley. We didn't even understand what was on offer here. When we were, when we were asked or commanded to give to the needy, we were actually being told, get up out of the mud and let's go to a resort on the edge of the sea. We didn't even know that it existed. This is the reward that Jesus is is talking about. This is the reward that's that's proper. This is the reward that we are promised. And Jesus says, as a Christian, when you give to the needy, not if, when you give to the needy, there's lots of ways you can do this through the church, individually, through other charitable organizations. When you give to the needy, don't go low and do it for attention, do it for some kind of gain for yourself. 
go high. And do it in secret. Do it just for God. Do it just for that other person. And do it just so that you'll be more like the God who is a God who gives to those in need. Who is a God who is generous beyond belief. Jesus says, do that. And one day you'll look back and realize you never even could have imagined how much life there was in store for you. And the reality that Jesus calls the kingdom. A reality that he says you and I are invited into to live into right now and experience the blessings of it. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning of worship. We thank you for the opportunity to, to look into your scriptures. We thank you for the teachings that you have given us. We pray that you would allow us to be a people who give to those in need as a community and as individuals and as families. We, we pray that you would allow us to do it with our intentions in the right and proper place. We pray that, that you would allow us to step up the reward we're looking for, that we wouldn't be so easily satisfied with attention and applause and ego and money and status. We pray, Father, that in all things you would continue to, to slowly but surely shape and form our hearts into the heart of Christ. We would look and act and give more like your Son. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.